This episode of the West Buck Show is brought to you by Elite Motorsports, my friends. Located in Winniewood, Oklahoma, gosh, I love saying Winniewood, Elite Motorsports is your premier dealer for all your motorsports transportation needs. Elite Motorsports offers a wide variety of semi-transporters, motor coaches, gooseneck and stacker trailers, specialty hospitality and point-of-sale units, as well as new and used high-performance engines, race cars, and racing equipment. I've been there. They've got so much stuff, it's almost unbelievable. Elite Motorsports works closely with all the racing industry's premier manufacturers, so if they don't have what you're looking for, they'll go out and find it for you. Before you purchase a newer used race rig, check out Elite Motorsports at EliteMotorsportsLLC.com. And tell them that Wes sent you. They'll probably give you a smoking deal or tell you never to call again, one or the other. I'm not positive. EliteMotorsportsLLC.com. These guys are real deal racers, and they will work hard to take care of you. And don't forget that they accept trades. We're also brought to you by Aeromotive Incorporated, a true high-performance aftermarket manufacturer specializing in fuel delivery and fuel system components for drag racing, off-road, late model, street rod, and muscle car, tuner, sports car, marine, and power sports. Utilizing aerospace tolerances and procedures, three generations of track experience, and a meticulous approach to engineering, Aeromotive Fuel Systems offers the pinnacle of performance fuel delivery. The team at Aeromotive believes that performance means reliability, longevity, and durability. That's the philosophy they've built their company and their products on, so dial up aeromotiveinc.com, aeromotiveinc.com on the World Wide Web and get after it. Whether you've got a twin-turbo LS on E85 or a roots-blown Hemi, Aeromotive has what you need. My guest today is the founder and president of Aeromotive Fuel Systems, a leading manufacturer in the automotive aftermarket and racing industry, the driver of Aeromotive's twin-turbo NHRA Pro Mod Mustang, and a dear, dear friend of mine with a deep history in the sport of drag racing and an always unique perspective, the one and only Steve Matusik. To start with that video. Yeah, I had to start with that, man. I was so in shout out to the NHRA for providing that clip to us because it was, well, it felt like a moment, man. And can you take me through a little bit of what, because for the, at first I was like, oh man, did they make like a preload change to the back of the car? What, what exactly is going on? But it sounds like there was just, it was so hot and, you know, kudos to the NHRA safety safari. They do a fantastic job and it was 3 million degrees in Virginia, but I think the water box had pretty well dried out. Well, we tried something different on that run. We only had one rear tire on the car, and, and amazingly, it got down the racetrack. So that just goes, shows that goes to the show what a good team we are. Um, but seriously, right before the run, and, and as you said, it was very hot. Uh, the sun was out. The track was hot. And uh, right before we were, were going to make our run, um, Brad Personette decided to change lanes. So, uh, so it was a lane swap which added a little bit of extra time. And I, I think what happened was they went ahead and, and went down the bleach boxes, and then that extra time just allowed some of that water to evaporate. So by the time we changed lanes and got up there to do the burnout, it was probably a little bit thin on the driver's side tire anyway. But uh, by the time we got up there, it was dry, and, and we didn't catch it. And when he started doing the burnout, um, you know, next thing I know, I'm looking at the Christmas tree, and my first thought was, I can't believe I'm going to run the Christmas tree over and then I felt like, well, I can't believe I'm going to hit the wall. You know, and it was hand, you know, pro mod car, you're only supposed to turn it three, three, maybe four degrees. That's about it, or, or you know, two or three numbers. But uh, I was literally hand over hand on the wheel um, to left and then to the right. And, and after it all happened, I just sat in the car and, and I thought, well, it's still straight, didn't hurt anything, car's still running. And it kind of made me laugh, you know, backed up. And um, <laughs> it really kind of relaxed me. And, and the results, uh, the results were positive, so so I don't know what it is, but uh, you know, for for anybody like like me that's been driving a car like that for a long time, 
those things don't really rattle you. They almost calm you down and, and make you more focused. And, uh, you know, we, uh, we had a really good run that day. Yeah, um, clearly. O twenty four light, because that was really, I said that over the PA, that if you're able to, you guys clearly had a race car that was capable of going rounds, but if you were go- guys were able to, if you were able to kind of gather it back in and, and regroup, and that's, I don't know that we can really say enough, like keeping your composure in those cars before they're even fired up. I don't know about anybody else, but there's been innumerable times I've walked through the staging lanes and I'm not calling anybody out, but you see some of those people with the deer in the headlights look and it's, and that's before the car is even fired up. These are volatile, dangerous machines. We all know what they're capable of. We've seen them at their best and worst, but then to, to pull it all together after that, Steve, I think it was pretty impressive. And for for those of you that don't know, join today, the West Buck show with Steve Matusik, Airmotive, president, co-founder. Uh, we're actually on location here, NHRA Pro Mod Superstar, Complimentator Racer. You've done all sorts of stuff, man. I, I'm i excited to do an episode of the show on location. It seems like we only do this with you. You must, you have my number or something. Uh, I, you know, you must uh, owe me some money or something, so we clearly we pull that together and bring <laughs> yeah. you out here. Well, I'm glad to be here. It's exciting. And what a weekend it was in Virginia. And there's so many storylines that I think will be fun to discuss with you because you were, you have been a driving force behind the, the, the growth and explosion of popularity and, and really racer and sponsor interest in the NHRA pro mod drag racing series by being a big part of the real pro mod association, our mutual dear, dear friend, Danny Rose brainchild, this, this group of racers that got together to kind of take matters into their own hands, maintain, preserve, and hopefully foster growth for the pro mod for legal quarter mile pro mod drag racing. And you've seen this class, at its worst, right? I mean, we had short fields and we were calling and trying to get people to participate in the field and to be involved with this deal. And now you've you've seen it at kind of its best and worst as well, because this is one of those things that we've talked about off the air and, and off the record many times. Be careful what you wish for, because we, we wanted more, more competition in Pro Modified. We wanted more cars. We wanted higher level teams. But as we've received that, there's consequences to that. We've seen ProMod right now, I think inarguably the NHRA ProMod Drag Racing Series is the final frontier for fast door slammer racing. And we started to see the cream perpetually rising to the top. What do you make of how far this class has come and kind of this station that we're at in 2019? You know, and, and we don't look back that often, um, but but it, it, it's rewarding uh, to see the class and the teams uh, and the sanction embrace what what we knew could happen to, to bring more money into the class. Um, we are on the cusp of, of um, I think, finding a real sponsor that's going to take us over the top. So so it's been a long journey. We've been incubating this thing for, for quite a few years. Our goal has always been from the beginning to, to get that snowball rolling downhill, to get some momentum, um, to get some good exposure, to let the drivers be drivers, to let the characters be characters. Um, and, you know, the unique thing about the class is that the majority of the class is comprised of business owners. We're not beholden to anyone. We don't have to worry about the big sponsors. Um, so you see the personalities come out. And, and it's interesting when you're in the lanes, there's a lot of camaraderie, um, even though there, there's a lot of um, competition, um, and there's, there's you know, gamesmanship that goes on, but there's a lot of camaraderie because we all know what it's like to be in the car, um, to, to know how far the class has come, to work as hard as everybody's worked. And uh, it, it's just been great to be a part of it. 
and it's very rewarding to see how far it's come, and, and I'm very excited about where it's going to go. Do you think, like when we go back to those, because there's a couple of kind of things that we can dive into there. One is I just want to talk strictly about the performance level real quick. It's been headlines since the start of the season that 565 there side-by-side mid-560s by Todd Tuttero and Stevie Jackson at the first race of the season. Their success continued in Houston. We saw those same you know 5.6-second performances we saw last September. For me, I think that was the... That was the shot across the bow, in my opinion, when we saw the the 577 bump in St. Louis. And you saw Stephen Whiteley make an incredible run yourself. Many teams make these monumental performances and load up and head home on mm-hmm. Saturday night. That was when I knew we were in deep, deep water and there would be a moment. And racers surprise me all the time that they're, the fight in these in this particular group of people is remarkable. But I knew that there would be a point when we would start to see this thing reach a kind of its threshold for what people were willing to continue to fight this fight, especially as we've seen, you know, Qatar on the side of race cars and Bahrain on the side of race cars and Kuwait on the side of race cars and elite performance. And I'm just curious, do you, is this an exciting time or do you have mixed emotions about it as all these big teams come in and we start to see some of the journeymen and the solo entrepreneur type guys not necessarily get pushed out because we have a slew of those guys who are fighting the good fight with a lot of success. But I mean, what, what is your take on that? Is this a good place we're at or, or what, what do you make of it? Well, I, you hit the nail on the head in the beginning when you said, be careful what you wish for. Um, we, we had a vision that, that we would get real professionals in the class, people that, um, that, that had the means, had the talent, had the uh, charisma that could take this class to another level. Um, what you don't always anticipate is what's going to happen to the competition. You know, the competition within the class, and and we're we're living through that now and we're seeing it. And it, it's it's fortunate um, because it's really elevating the class because we're breaking records and doing amazing things that a couple of years ago. I mean, you look at the you know number one qualifier um, and the bump. It's you know almost a tenth of a second quicker. Um, in Gainesville this year than it was the previous year with the same rule package. So, and the air wasn't that much different. The track's about the same. So, so you're really seeing a, a lot of effort being put into, into this class by, by a lot of the teams. So the competition is unreal. So that part of it's uh, been a bit of a surprise. We thought we'd see, you know, some elevated uh, performances, but not like we have seen. And uh, it, it's, it's gotten very challenging I kind of do miss the old days where, you know, you drive the truck and trailer and work on your own car and, and you know, tune when you can and, and everybody has a day job. But um, to be competitive, you almost have to either um, find that big sponsor and do this 100% of the time or uh, combine yourself or marry into a team that has the resources and the right. means that allows you to be competitive while you can continue to, to pay attention to your business. It's interesting for me because one of the things that you and I have talked about and I've been a big proponent about and made a big stink about is how you know the dry and this is something that I think is kind of a common notion right now a popular thing to say is that you know anybody can drive these things and the it's the perpetual dumbing down or pussification of of drag racing or whatever but I I go back to that video we showed at the beginning of the show of this thing this Mustang of yours completely broadside you backing it up, cutting an O24 light, running a bottom 580, that to me 
speaks to the challenge of driving these cars every bit as much as shifting gears or leaving with a clutch. I mean, obviously, every one of these things adds to the, the, to the difficulty level of the task at hand, but not some of the drivers, not to name names or anything, that I remember back being big, big people in the sport or real heavy hitters, I don't know that they could have gathered themselves up in that moment. And I'm not just blowing smoke. I'm just saying that there's being a good driver and what's required of you guys behind the wheel it's not just about how many limbs you're moving and what motions you're making, right? Because the, the, there are probably more races won and lost right now on the starting line than ever before. Because mm-hmm. five years ago, if you made a good run, you might, you're probably going to at least go to the second round. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, these, these cars are, are animals. And, and when everything, all the systems work, the track's right, the car's right, I think just about anybody that's ever been in a drag car can drive them. I mean, they, they have been dumbed down. Um, I've, I've, it's, it's been well said by myself and, and several other drivers that, that we hate the fact that we're all leaving off of a button, we're not shifting, we're not driving the car. You know, because the, the real competitive drivers like the challenge of, hey, look, if you miss that shift by 50 RPMs, or if, um, if you don't, a clutch is a lot harder, in my opinion, to leave with than, than a button. So if you're a little bit later with the reaction time or you have to put a lot more, uh, t- change the ratio quite a bit in the clutch in order to cut a good light, well, now you got a lot more load on your foot talking back to you with the kind of weight on the clutch. Or, you know, there's a lot of factors with driving the car versus having the systems pre-programmed and, and the self-shifters and things like that. But, but there is the aspect of the car that the unknown, anything can happen at any point in time. And the, and the second you take it for granted, that's when it comes back to bite you. So... So, yes, these cars are set up now that the crew chief uh, or the guy on the keyboard is is as important as he's ever been. But um, the the driver himself has to be prepared and ready because, you know, if you have a system failure or a problem or an issue, that's when you got to be on the ball and you got to be prepared for it. And, you know, just like what happened in the burnout or I've had incidents where the chutes don't come out, you know, and, and a lot of guys rely on the transponder to pull the parachutes, which – we always have our shoots out early. I make every run like the shoots aren't coming out. That way, and, and that's nothing that you can um, really anticipate. You have to go through the painstaking process of putting it in the sand or the shoots don't come out or, you know, then then even on a great run where everything's perfect, something bad can happen. So in a lot of instances, that's what separates the guys that have experience and have been in the seat versus some of the guys that maybe haven't been, and I think it's so much easier for the guys that haven't been to get in the seat now um, because of, of those systems that aid the driver that, you know, I'm not sure, again, I'm a fan of, but that's what it's come to, and it's created an inventory of a lot more cars, and, and I think ultimately it's helped the class. Do you think that if we, like, if we played king for a day, right, mm-hmm. and we wrote a rule that starting in Topeka, you've got a manually shift the car and you have to leave off a clutch no matter what combination you have what would it do what would it do to i mean and just saying that for the sake of argument everybody had the resources to make those changes and we just made we made it a rule what would it do to the class inventory wise you know i all of us that have done it before think that um it would cut the the number of racers in half on day one but you know what? Maybe it wouldn't. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd love to do that. I'd love to see because a lot of these drivers, even though they haven't had that experience, they're great competitors and they're out there. And, and maybe they would, you know, love the challenge and maybe they'd step up to that. And, and I don't think that 
they'd be as competitive on day, day one. But, you know, getting to know some of the guys and seeing how, how the depth um, of their commitment and, and the depth of their passion, um, maybe they would, be, uh, you know, embrace that and uh, um, want to try it. And, and I think it would be great. I mean, I'd love if we could all get back to that aspect of it. But, but again, it's counter to technology. It's counter to where we're at now. And I don't think we're ever going to see that day again. I don't think so either. And I, I remember, and I mentioned this on an episode of the podcast that I did with Shane Tecklenburg. And it was, I was recalling a conversation that I had with Phil Schuler, a well-known top fuel crew chief, very accomplished guy, an extremely smart dude. And he said to me, hey, man, don't get it twisted. This torque converter deal, it, it may be different, but it, it's not easy. It, it's right, not an right. infinitely or it's not an extremely <coughs> easy thing. And we're seeing that now because basically everybody's moved to the automatic tra- a converter, uh, converter-driven transmission, but it's not like everybody's running 565 every time out. So I'm curious, do you see that was something that, that Shane said he felt like the next thing to happen is everybody developing – further developing their converter program. We see guys have their own in-house engine programs. We see a, a handful of, you know, high-level supercharger guys or turbo gurus or suspension gurus. Do you think it's uh, the next thing we're going to see is guys teaming up with a specific converter guy that goes with them every weekend? I, I think that's a, an accurate um, um, statement about what's happening in that world. Uh, I don't know this to be fact, but I believe that I've heard in the past that Stevie Fast has like 50 different staters hanging in the in the trailer, and he's got a lot of uh, data on which stater to put in given certain atmosphere conditions, certain track temperature, so on and so forth, and it's obvious how well he's running. Right. So so I, I think that that's – with a clutch, I mean, you had that ability for an infinite amount of tunability, and the guys that were good with a clutch, um, ultimately a lot of them, a lot of us have the same power. Like the turbo cars, you know, yeah, you, you see them when they run out the back door, we're within one or two mile an hour of each other. So right. so we're all making about the same power. But but getting it from, from A to B the most efficient way possible uh, is going to require the science and the driveline and the power management. And, and to be able to translate that power to the rear wheels and do it uh, effectively given all the conditions we run with, what a lot of people don't understand is we could be over the course of a weekend see – um, the, the density altitude move close to 2,000 feet, right. and the track temperature go from you know 80 degrees one day to 140 degrees the next. So, so we it's very challenging when you run on the NHRA circuit, especially behind the fuel cars when they're putting the clutch dust on the racetrack, and sometimes they prep it, sometimes they don't because the TV show and, and how concise right. the program is. So, so there's a lot of challenges that that get thrown at you during the course of an NHRA national event that I don't think you see at events that are specifically geared toward door cars, whether that be radial or big tire door cars. You know, there's a lot of diversity. You know, we were running behind the factory stock cars. And and um, think about that for a second. When you go to a radial race, they prep the track a certain way, and we all know that the radial tires tear up the rubber. Well, every session in qualifying, we were right behind those cars with radial tires. And they're fast. I mean, they're making 1,500 really horsepower. Fast. And uh, and you see the racetrack, you go up there and you just shake your head because there's no track. And, and Virginia is a great facility, but those radial tires just tear the rubber off the track. And, okay, now there's a new challenge. Here we are for the first time this year. We're running right behind radial cars, and we got to go up there and make our qualifying runs. And, and you got to run, you know, low 580s to, to know that you're in. And... Uh, you know, that's a new challenge. So all of a sudden you see all the crew chiefs going back, scratching their heads saying, 
now what are we going to do? So, so uh, yes, I think that torque converter package is, is uh, going to evolve and become even more important. And there are going to be those guys, and Shane said it, that he thinks some of the guys will show up you know, with a stator in their briefcase and you know, put it in a car, and, and when the race is over, take it out, put it back in their briefcase, and leave. That's what it's getting to. I, I think that's where it's headed, and I, it feels there's a part of me that says you're right. It's just a natural evolution. The technology's there. It used to be you carried a, a couple of aluminum nuts or whatever right, in your right, pocket, right? 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 Yep. But now it's going to be a guy showing up with a briefcase with these three top-secret staters in it, and I've heard the same thing, that Stevie will like make a stator change every few hundred feet of air, mm-hmm. and I look at there are a, a slew of teams out here that have like maybe two converters total, you know what I mean? Like a tight one and a loose one. Right. And that's as, as much of that adjustability as they're seeing. And I guess whenever I see Stevie go 565 or 575 and everybody else go 582, you, you can't help but kind of point to he's just a little bit further ahead on that converter program than I think a lot of these guys that have raced with a clutch. I'm curious, you've raced a turbo car with a clutch and had considerable success. I mean, you, you you spun that thing around a couple of times and, and scared all of us or whatever doing a 360 at the, <laughs> the eighth mile. But it was a nasty, nasty combination. Do you, like, given infinite runs, given all the time in the world, do you kind of wish you had another shot at that combination? Do you think that combination, the twin-turbo Hemi with a clutch, could be successful? I think it would be badass. I mean, <laughs> you know, it, it's one of those things where you put the driver back into the equation, um, the car is just violent. I mean, the turbo package with a converter, um, from my limited experience being in a turbo car with a converter, is that it's like a sponge. Everything that happens in the car, whether it be a gear change or when the power comes in, it's a smooth transition. But when, when we had a clutch car and, and we were running you know, an ungodly amount of counterweight um, and we were trying to lock that thing up when you know, your power di- differential is sometimes 1500 horsepower difference versus when you leave the starting line to to when you, you after you stick the thing in second gear everything was just violent you know you pull it in a gear and you feel it and and we were talking about this over the weekend every time you make a gear change it puts you back in the seat if it gets down the racetrack you put it in third gear put you in the seat you know you put it in fourth gear put you in the seat whereas these things you can feel the gear change i can't even feel the one two gear change for for just about on every run you know it's, it slides right in the second gear you're driving through the converter and you kind of feel the, the, the second to third shift, but nothing like um, a clutch car with with uh, in, in a turbo. And and uh, the, the feedback and the feeling and the violent nature of the car, I mean, it's just raw. And, and uh, you know, back in the day, I felt like this must be what the, you know, the, the AA fuel altered guys used to feel like, is you don't know if it's going to go left, right, up, down. It's violent. It shakes. If you get through a run, you know, and you get the shoot side – you're happy. You know, it's not just about <laughs> survival. You know, yes, yeah, yeah. it's, it's more about survival than it is about qualifying and racing. Um, and it was it was a great experience. I would love to do it again. I might be getting a little bit too old to do it. Um, <laughs> you know how it is with the big fish stories. The older you yeah. get, the bigger the fish gets. But but uh, I just it was just a pure rush of an adrenaline, and it was just raw. Well, I wonder sometimes though that there Brett Kepner did this story a long time ago, and it was it went crazy on the internet because I think it was. It basically it was like no the the rule that would change everything, no wheelie bars. Oh, yeah, right. But it was yeah. what he was really talking about though was just that drag racing in its infancy there was a a violence mm-hmm. to it, this impossible beast to tame or whatever that has by all accounts I mean very much is very much diminished in mm-hmm. 2019. That 
violent nature of the sport has kind of dissipated. And I mean, the sports that are popular still today, whether it's football, hockey, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's about the violence of there's a, to a certain extent, the UFC or whatever, uh, pro wrestling. And I do wonder sometimes if it would be like a step forward, sometimes you have to take a couple steps back to take a step forward. Right. And I wonder sometimes if we could allow ourselves to even entertain the notion of, Oh my gosh, the cars might go a little slower. Mm-hmm. That's fine, but we will extend the life of our sport or maybe grow it by embracing some of that violence and some of the challenge and difficulty and making this something that not everybody can do. Because I don't know that we've talked about this, and I know it's kind of a it's it's a double edged sword. But I don't think drag racing or driving a pro mod or a top fuel car or a funny car or anything. I don't think it should be something that any. Tom, Dick, and Harry can do? Because no one's going to say that anybody can play in the NBA Finals next month, right? I, I agree completely. I mean, this this should be uh, an environment where if you want people to come to pay, watch you do this. Um, and you made the statement of not everybody is LeBron James. Not everybody could dunk a basketball. But if you could go and buy a, a pair of shoes that allow you to jump that high and dunk, well, that's going to take away from the real talent. And I, and I think that's that's the downside of, of you know, the, the technology aspect of where we're at is that I think we're, we're selling ourselves short that, yes, we want inclusion. Yes, we want a lot of people. Yes, we want a lot of inventory. But I truly feel like if we would have sat back years ago and had a crystal ball and could think about it, I think we would have had a lot bigger fan following if you kept the cars raw and it, it, you, it was reliant on the driver to be able to tame that beast, to be able to get the car down the racetrack. You know, people like a Ricky Smith, you know, who's done it and he can do it. He's a guy that you said, hey, tomorrow put a clutch in the car, no two-step, whatever, you got to shift it, he's in. You know, people like that, and, and there aren't a lot of people like that. And, and I, I would love that because now that's the challenge. And the challenge is about survival, about doing it right, about getting down the racetrack. And, and winning is almost second. You know, now right. it's just about, hey, if I cut a light, you know, I'm a good driver. Well, okay, you cut a good light. I mean, you have to cut a good light. That's part of the package. So so driving a race car uh, or a drag car in today's environment isn't just about cutting a good light. It's about, you know, keeping it in the groove. It's about doing what you need to do to win the race. It's about keeping yourself safe. It's about getting the shoots out on time. It's about staying out of the other guy's lane, you know, not creating a scenario where if, if you are out of control, you don't cross lanes and take the other guy out and hurt somebody else. It's about doing a burnout, not hitting a tree. <laughs> Christmas yeah. tree. So so there's a lot about it that if if we could go back and, and really let the talent pool rise to the top, I almost think that the inventory of cars might be smaller, but the fan base might be a whole lot bigger, and it would be like the major sporting events then because people don't go to watch pro football because they can play as good as the other guys playing pro football. They go there to because it's a spectacle. You know, they go there to watch basketball because these athletes are unbelievable and it's a spectacle. Right. And these things, yes, the cars, you know, you heard in the past the cars are the stars, but I, I don't think so. I think the individuals should have been put on pedestals and, and people like Don Gartlitz and Don Perdome and Tom McEwen, that's why they had staying power and that's why they're popular even today. And, and I hate the fact that Tom's gone now, but... You know, those guys were on a pedestal and as popular as they were for for five, six decades because they had real talent and they did things other people could not do. I think that that alone is probably has been more of a hindrance 
to our sports popularity and growth than any other thing else. I mean, not fuel pumps, not tire technology, nothing. Like these, there's cur- there's always going to be a problem or whatever, but not having embraced those personalities and worked harder to develop. I mean, John Force is a prime example. I mean, you see it every weekend. The pan- the fans will, there is a percentage of the fans that show up to NHRA races that as soon as he's made it to the shutdown safely and done his top-end interview, they exit the stands and go stand in line to see him and maybe shake his hand or sign an autograph. And I think that the thing about that is I don't know that, I mean, there, I would, I'm giving John some credit. I think he knows what he's doing. I think he knows that he's putting on a show. He's embracing this persona, and he's, he's turning it on, so to speak. But I think the NHRA, you know, they, don't, they haven't embraced that necessarily. I mean, they've taken advantage of it. They're riding the wave. But I don't know that there's, like, a big effort going on behind the scenes to say, like, okay, here's another guy that I think has got some magic or whatever, or here's a guy that's great on, the, on camera. Let's shove a camera in his face every time we can because the focus is so much so on the cars. Mm-hmm. And it's, I don't know, it's, it seems like sometimes I think when I say this stuff, despite the fact that you'll get people online going, yeah, 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 a lot of times I feel like I'm speaking Hebrew or something. Right, people, right. It's just a different wavelength because all of our eggs with drag racing, at least pro-level drag racing, it's in like header flames, 300 miles per hour, 10,000 horsepower. It's really loud. It's a sensory experience. And it is all those things. But I think it's like, I truly think that it's secondary to a lot of the big, colorful personalities that we have out here that people don't even know. You know, and, and that's to your point. I mean, I was talking with Jimmy Rector today, and he got involved with a, a no prep team, one guy that ended up buying one of Danny's engines. And the amount of money they get paid to show up. And the number of races they have, and the amount they can win, and and nothing against these guys, but I don't think any of them could show up for an NHRA race, even if they were given a program and qualified. I mean, so, <clears throat> but but those types of series embrace the fact that they're the personalities that they're promoting, and the racing is secondary. So I I just I agree with you completely. I, I the only thing I've seen a little different though, is that now having spent some time on the same team with Alex Laughlin and Eric Enders, who, in my opinion, are, are very, very good drivers. Um, and everybody knows about Erica, and I can tell you, she's she's unbelievable. Seeing what she has done in that ProMod car with very little experience has impressed me. But I think NHRA is starting to finally realize that, hmm, you know, putting Alex on the cover, I don't know if they did that because of you or you did that because of them with your magazine, but but he's a personality. And, and he's a good guy, and he's got a following. And, and Erica, she's the real deal, and she's a real driver, and she's real passionate. And, and the amount of people that come to our pit to see them and to see the youngsters and, and embrace those personalities, it was good to see NHRA exploit that, if you will, Absolutely. and put Alex on the cover because he is the real deal, and he has won some big races in a lot of different types of cars. And to see both of them jump into a pro-stock car and then a pro-mod car, Say what you want. I've been in multiple cars at, at multiple events, and you know some of them with a full tree or a pro tree, some of them with a clutch or a, or a button. It's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy, and for them to not just jump in those cars, but do it successfully, is is very impressive. So, so I I, I agree with you that the the individuals, the racers, um, the sponsors, uh, the car owners. There needs to be a lot more focus push, pushed on them, and, and I think that if you start to do that and you start to engage those personalities, it's it's only going to be good for the for the sport. 
I and I look at like the Cowboys, the Dallas Cowboys. Look at how much infamous, emphasis gets put on what Jerry Jones, mm-hmm. this old guy, right? Like yeah. just a random old. guy. I don't ever remember seeing him score a touchdown. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm just going. This guy can't move without it being headline news. Right. Yep. Right. And I just look at our sport, and I'm like, man, we have all these similar characters. We have these really outspoken team owners, oftentimes that have their hands on a hundred different things or have all these different businesses. I mean, look at this big controversy with Robert Kraft, right? I mean, here's a team owner, and that was treated like as if the dude was the president of the United States, this big, you know, and I just wonder, like, man, why are we so laser focused? It'd be as if, you know, all the focus is on, I always say that, like, if I look at Sports Illustrated magazine, Steve, it's not you don't ever see like basketballs and footballs on the cover. You see the people who play those sports right, on the right, cover. Yeah. Same with Rolling Stone. Mm-hmm. It's never drum kits or guitars. It's the people who play them on right. the cover. And I think by and large, our sport is just locked. We have laser focus on the on-track product. And then if you look at, and I know you guys do a ton of, uh, you guys work with a lot of these street outlaw guys and a lot of these no prep racers that are you know big TV stars. You'll notice if you watch any of those shows, the racing component is fairly limited. Right, um, right. Murder Tundra over here watches every one of them and hasn't ever missed an episode ever and has them all saved on his DVR. Every single one of them watches some of them multiple times a day. So you can catch up when we're driving. Right, right. But <laughs> I didn't I mean, realize you were that dark. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's terrible. But it's like literally they, they race for like the last five minutes of the show. Yeah. That's it. You know, it's funny because we uh, when, when the ProMod show came out um, and uh, – Initially, Ted Jones um, was involved, and, and it was produced by a different company, his, right. his company. And it was great because he had enough knowledge. He'd come to our pit after a run, and he'd say one or two words just to stir it up. But, and he knew exactly what to say and how to say it. And there was a lot more dialogue. And, and I thought it was a really interesting show. And, and a couple of years later, we were trying to, to get you know some of the people that were doing the interviews. It's like, hey, come to the pits. You need to talk to this. You need to see that. Have you ever, you know, focused on after you went around and you see the crew jumping up and down and interview the wife or the boyfriend or the girlfriend or, you know, the father, you know, because some people are in tears, some people are, ha- you know, and they're, oh, we, we've got, you know, 20 minutes and we got to have 15 minutes of racing and then we'll have, we'll interview the semifinalists and the finals. And it's like, to me, it's just bland. It's just, you're, you're putting cars on the track and you see them go up and down and you don't get let's face there's it, no like, context well let's face it on tv you don't get the feel when you're at a drag race anybody that's been there if you're on a starting line it caters to every sense in your body you know you can smell it you can feel it you can hear it your inside shake um but on tv it really doesn't resonate um so if if they were able to take that next step and go into the depth of the sport and really interview some of the people i think that's where you'd start to see an interest level where it would really start to grow our fan base, and not just pro mod, but all forms of drag racing. And then we're going to have more popularity, more sponsors, more races, more opportunities. And, and I think um, that's what we would need to do to grow this thing. But but it's just it's not happening. It's interesting because if you look at and there's a couple of good examples. One is with back with Street Outlaws. They know more than. You know, show the car going down the track, going past the flashlight lane in the street, which I've never really completely understood. Whatever. Right, right, go right. past the flashlight right. lane, the, the random mag light. Go past the random three-cell mag light, right? And they instantaneously cut to a studio interview 
yeah. with a guy going, well, I knew I left on him. I could see him out of the corner of my eye. My glove slipped off the shifter a little bit. They're providing context yeah. to what just happened. And I do feel like, by and large, we miss that because we – and it's part of it is a training thing where a lot of these drivers don't have any sort of media training. They don't have a, peruse, a producer or a director telling them, hey, man, you need to call him fat. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. you need to call him fat. That's what's going to happen, okay? Yeah. Because, I mean, and, and we're, we're probably giving the cast of the Street Outlaws too much credit because they have someone in their ear telling them maybe not exactly what to say, but as you said, Ted Jones and Master Entertainment did masterfully is they would give those little nuggets to kind of prod you, to hold the carrot out there, and you can't help yourself. And I think that that's something that drag racing coverage by and large lacks is just that kind of productorial role or that angle where somebody's going, okay, here's some storylines I see developing. Stevie Jackson and Ricky Smith in the first round this past weekend in Virginia is a prime example. Mm -hmm. Teammates, basically, different power adders, kind of also at the same time notoriously uh, tricky competitors or whatever. That's something that where there would have been a hell of an opportunity to probably capture some attention. And the other thing that I think always drives me crazy is we're in this voyeuristic time where there are stars that are literally stars, superstar celebrities, just from being alive, like just from being themselves. They have no talent to speak of. They may be exceptionally beautiful or very funny or whatever, but they're literally just – there are shows that have massive followings that just capture them living their lives. And here we have all these people that are interesting people doing this extremely dangerous thing. And here we are struggling to find sponsors and struggling to to really see any sort of measurable growth for the sport. It's at least a little bit – I'm not trying to be a, a Debbie Downer or whatever, but it is something that I think unless we have these conversations, nothing ever is going to change. Well, what, what's ironic about it is that anybody that is at the racetrack in a car, he's doing it because he's passionate about it. This is an emotional, passionate sport. It's It's a way of life. And the fact that whenever you get media not covering that, it's crazy. I mean, because that's why everybody that gets in a race car is doing it because they're passionate about cars. Nobody has to do it. I mean, this is this is crazy. I mean, I right. talk about this, and this makes no sense. To get in a car and go down the racetrack in five seconds, you know, 260 miles an hour, spend all this money, all this time to be in the car for, you know, a total of maybe – 60 seconds, you know, race time on, on a given weekend. And, and again, you look at all that, and but but we're doing it because you have a love of it, you have a passion for it, and you do it. And, and none of that is really focused on, on, on any of the shows. And that, that's what I don't understand is that if you can just harness that, I think that that would be an unbelievable package that people would flock to, just like Housewives or any of those shows that are about people's emotion and passion and and um, you know, wearing their heart on the sleeve, and it—it's it, crazy that that nobody's been able to harness that as of yet. It's interesting, and I'm curious if we put on your like something that I noticed here, like just at Aeromotive today, is that as we're walking through the facility, which is beautiful, you got to be very proud um, yeah. of this place. As we walk around from shop to shop and door to door, uh, I I I hear you talk about like, hey, here's a new market that we're thinking about breaking into, or here's a market that we're really committed to. Um, all these different things, whether it's certain segments of the racing industry, something in the industrial world. And I'm curious, when you look at drag racing, and if we just 
like maybe we kind of lump it all into together right now. If you were building product to fit to certain parts of our industry, I mean, I'm just kind of get your take on, like we talked about the UTV performance or whatever, or diesel performance. Diesel is a, a, a fairly booming segment of the automotive aftermarket. Like, let's just kind of go down the list here. If you were making product exclusively for top fuel, I mean, what are some of the issues? Or if, you were, if your product was top fuel, I mean, what's your take on nitro racing, where it's at in the market, growth-wise, or what we could do to, to, to bolster growth, or, or what are, what's your take there? I, I think, you know, drag racing has so many levels and layers. Um, my perspective on top fuel and funny car is shock and awe. The people that, that go to watch that type of racing – and, and it's impressive. No question. I mean, very impressive. And there's a lot of danger and a lot of speed and a lot of expense. But I believe that's shock and awe. The people that are sitting in the stands may not even be enthusiasts. They, they're there just to see a car that's loud and go that fast. They can't relate to it. Um, and, and for the most part, I'm not even sure that that type of a, um, a fan is even interested in pro stock um, right. or sportsman racing or pro mod because – they're there like going to the circus, right? The circus is in town. You go, you want to see the elephants. Some people want to see the clowns. Some people are afraid of the clowns. But, um, <laughs> but you got, you got they're, true. they're under the big top. And they're there, and, and you're never going to buy an elephant, you know. You, you never, well, some people want to dress up like a clown. <laughs> but, but you never want to see that. But, but at the end of the day, I think that class is very impressive. It's very fast. It's dangerous. Um, but to be honest... I don't think I've watched one pair of fuel cars so far this year go down the racetrack because that's not my interest. You know, I'm not that fan that is not an enthusiast. We do make products for those cars. Right. We do love the science about it, but it's not real. It's not relatable. It's not something that somebody sitting in the stands can relate to. So, yes, I think there's a place for that kind of fan. I think there's a place for a pro mod fan. I think there's a place for a sportsman fan. But I think it, it's all hinged on, you know, it starts with the personality, then it goes to the type of car that they're driving, and you find different people that, that have an appetite for different types of racing. I, I think you're going to see people driving electric cars that would go to a drag race to see a top fuel car, but they're not going to drive an electric car to go see a pro mod car. I just, you know, they're, they're just a different mindset. What do you make of the, and just kind of talk about, one of the things that I've kind of felt like is a bit of an issue, not even on the fan base side, but just on inventory of cars, like it's so expensive to run a, a nitro funny car or a top fuel car. We constantly hear these guys talk about, you know, the way these things eat money. And one of the things we could talk about is, you know, the fuel delivery and the fuel system of that and how that that seems to be something that everybody continues to point to as a way to slow those cars down potentially. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm just curious, like as a problem solver of sorts, is there something that you think could be done with, uh, you know, the stroke of a pen to say, maybe give us 10, 20% more nitro cars, top, top tier nitro cars in the country right now? I think they have to spec out an aeromotive fuel pump for all cars, and then we can make sure they're all. <laughs> I knew we were headed that direction. <laughs> so, so if NHR could come in today and say, "Hey, you know, cut the pump down to sixty gallons an hour. It has to be aeromotive." Right. You know, I think it'll all cars red and black. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All cars red and black. Do you think it's a performance thing? Is it simply that the cars are so fast, they're so hard on parts, the the levels that they go through parts? Is that hundred is that largely the problem? I, I you know, and, and this is where I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth because, you know, some of the the iconic 
team owners that, that are now own multiple cars. Um, part of me feels like if you wouldn't have that, you would have more cars, more inventory, more people interested. Because let's face it, let's just say if, if Don Schumacher was only allowed one top fuel car, one funny car, and he couldn't have three or four of each. Well, you might have guys on the sideline that think, maybe I could build a car and be competitive. And I don't have to be part of that team. And, and right. same with John Force. I mean, if he was only going to have one funny car and one fuel dragster, and then you had, you know, Connie Coletta, he could only have one funny car, one top fuel dragster. I think that at some level that might be good because now you get a guy that's right on the cusp, right on the edge. He wants to take that jump in but he hasn't because he feels like he doesn't even have a chance. Well, maybe that would give him a chance because there's only so many car team owners and it's kind of, and I'm not socialist at all, but it's spreading the wealth a little bit. It's giving other people a chance. And I think you might see more teams pop up with more cars and, and ultimately would make the class healthier because if one of those guys goes away right now, we got a real big problem. Really you know, big. If, if you lose one of those top teams, you know, a third of the field's gone. And how are they going to replace it? And there's no, you know, triple-A ball. There's no double-A ball. There's nobody waiting in the wings. There's no no longer do we have IHRA. Um, so we don't have the inventory that we had years ago. And I, I do believe um, that it is has something to do with how large some of those teams have become. I had this dream, and this I'm not getting ready to start a speech, but I literally did have a dream that there was like a – like, imagine if there was a contender series or something that was sponsored by one of these com- – like, uh, some of the companies that do really exciting things in the sport of drag racing and have been here for a long time. Like, imagine if we had a deal where two top – we had two funny cars or four funny cars. We had four top fuel dragsters, and we sent them two at a time mm-hmm. to the small drag strips of America, right? And they – and we let them kind of cut their teeth at these small tracks, marginally prepped or whatever, but they were running like an NHRA legal car. Like, imagine if Don Schumacher had two guys that were trying to run their deal, right, but didn't maybe have the resources to run 24 NHRA national events, but could do eight match races in 2019. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And we had those guys go into small tracks, exposing new people in smaller communities. I mean, it just feels like... And it's for me. I, this is uh, you know R and D, rip off and duplicate. I look at the UFC. They've actually started to do this. They have a fight. You know, they have all these fighters that managed to make their way to the UFC at some point, but they had to start finding new ways to like harvest talent. So they started these smaller shows, you know, or they started endorsing these smaller series, and that's where they get talent to bring up to the big show eventually. And it feels like we don't have drag racing. You know, nitro level drag racing doesn't really have a feeder series. And if this isn't a derogatory thing to say about the PDRA or the NMCA or anything else, but you do see some of those guys eventually end up in the NHRA. And I think that those, I mean, Danny Rowe and I have had this conversation a million times, like how important it is to the NHRA Pro Mod series that the PDRA is healthy, that NMCA is healthy, that the Northeast Outlaw Pro Mod Association is healthy. It's so important. And I kind of like, Hey, that's the reason we've got all these ProMod cars. NMCA. I mean, that's yeah. been a great, you know, you can go back and forth. The rule package is a little bit challenging. But, but you know, what you're talking about is, is interesting because us older guys remember back in the day it was like that. You used to have West Coast cars, East Coast cars, right. Southeast based, Northeast based. 
And the the one big race of the year that brought them all together was the U.S. Nationals. Right. And and that was a great program because you know the guys on the West Coast are wondering how do they how would they fare against the guys on the East Coast and, right. and and vice versa. And you know based on tracks when somebody you know I think it was um, Connie Kalita when he broke two hundred miles an hour there was a lot of skepticism uh, whether or not he did it whether it was certified whether right. the clocks were right and. And I guess before him, the Greek did it. Yeah. And and there was an argument about, well, no, the clocks weren't right. And, but that's controversy. And when did they settle it? When they came to the U.S. Nationals. Right. And, and that's where you get that pent-up demand. I think the problem with that, though, is that now with all the major sponsors and the amount of money it takes to run these cars, that they have to be in the big show because they have to entertain the sponsors. They have right. to get the ratings. They have to get you know so many views. Because if you're running some of these regional series or um, divisional races that they used to race, you don't have the cameras. You don't have right. the exposure. But I think where we're missing the boat a little bit here is with social media, with your program. With They could get the exposure. They could attract you know, a viewership that's um, powerful and, and gives the sponsors their money back. I think if they took some things away to take some cost away from – the sport, and you touched on it, smaller fuel pumps, single mags, um, you know, a certain amount of overdrive, certain size engine. If you did things that start to control the power, as opposed to, I don't agree with, with you know, reducing the, the friction on the racetrack. You know, to me, that's dangerous. I mean, you don't, you don't, you know, like, okay, basketball. You have these guys, you have some LeBron. He can sky over people and he could dunk and he's strong. So how do you fix that? Well, you make them play basketball on ice. Right. Really, you don't do that. You don't equalize, you know, the top player or the top team by taking the surface away. You figure out how to, you know, maybe take some tools away that are really money-motivated type tools so that you can bring a little bit more parity into the class. So, so I think there would be a way to do it, but, boy, it would be a huge undertaking. And I don't think with, you know – the strategic initiative of, of some of the sanctions that are out there now, that would ever um, come into play. I, th- I had this notion that we could have, like, the Jegs Thursday night shootout series, and you have, like, a Jegs-branded funny car and a Jegs-branded top fuel dragster that are going to go to 20 tracks and make two runs in 2019. And like you said, you could get garner that exposure mm-hmm. by way of social media, expose new people to nitro drag racing or whatever, and make sure that it's an Ashley Sanford that can't quite, doesn't have the budget to go <coughs> run at a high level, but we need her out here making laps. We need to kind of grow her fan following, do it at these smaller tracks, put a, you know, whoever, uh, Blake Alexander or another one of these up and comers behind the wheel of that funny car. It's just something that has, I don't know, kind of, I keep going, man, this, this seems like a way to funnel some money that would be effective and hopefully grow our sport. One of the things, and you're constantly uh, always referencing, you're a, a student of our sport as much as you are a participant. I'm curious, one of the, in an interview I did with Don Garlitz, he talked about how he hates, and you're much like this, you've worked on your own car and, and you're a do-it-yourselfer in a lot of different ways. He hates the, the, the destruction you know, and he had some notions like you should have to race the engine you qualify, mm-hmm. some things like that. Because he he tells this story, and I'm going to butcher it to some degree, but he when he made his return to t- to top fuel and and ran well, did okay, mm-hmm. uh, you know, went over 300 miles per hour, ran way down in the fours or whatever. Uh, he said, "I've still got 
the engines I started that season with, I still have them. They're all ready to run. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't tear up anything. Like hurt one piston the whole time. Whereas now, everybody with a top flight nitro program, it is basically a parts disposal program. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you, what, what do you take of just the carnage that we see at the highest levels of drag race? Because we're starting to see it a little bit at ProMod, and I'm and I'm kind of saying this. I don't. I'm not going to give myself enough credit to say that I was doing this on purpose. But this is a full circle conversation really, because we're kind of staring down the barrel of the exact same thing with ProMod. The only advantage we have is that we do have an organic feeder system. We do have these feeder leagues that keep people active and keep new cars coming. But I do wonder if we shouldn't start to try to cut off some of this stuff at the past where we're tearing up stuff, we're we're blowing up stuff. Everybody's melting engines down, it seems like, more frequently than ever. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, is that, I mean, maybe we're... I, I think it's an interesting concept. I mean, NHRA, you know, has tried to do things to, to penalize teams for rolling down the racetrack, and and I think it, for their purposes, is more about a timing issue as opposed to right. a carnage issue or a cost issue. But, but uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it's interesting because I agree with you. I mean, that would be a really interesting um, program where you were only allowed to have one um, block in you know, one set of cylinder heads and oh, yeah, maybe you could change pistons or whatever, but that's it. I right. mean, and if you, if you burn a cylinder head or if you crack up, you're done. Right. And someone else gets inserted. And that would be an interesting way to maybe bring some of the costs down and race smarter and have more efficient type racing. Um, I've never considered that before, but I, I think that would, that would be something really interesting that should be, you know, explored. It is interesting. I want to talk about a couple more things before we cut you loose. Um, First and foremost, well, I'll save this actually for the end. The next thing is just the explosion. You were just talking about the friction of the drag strip, and but the explosion of this no prep drag racing and this no prep style of racing. I'm just curious, like, are there any other forms of drag racing that that still kind of pique your interest? One of the, I mean, as someone who's selling product in this industry, you you see the highs and lows. I mean, where do you see some high spots? I mean, the the radial tire stuff, the no prep stuff. What I mean, it seems like the big money bracket racing uh, scene is rapidly growing. What what types of drag racing and which different spots of our industry are on your radar right now? Well, I, I think uh, we're hitting on all cylinders right now. Um, drag racing, from what we're seeing, is strong. Whether it be the import stuff, which is pretty cool because you got the you know the small Ecotech engines and and what they're doing and the power they're making and the fact that they still have clutches and they have to shift them and those cars are very impressive. The radial stuff has been impressive and. And actually, I think some of the inv- advancements that you've seen in radial actually crosses over to some of the ProMod stuff. Is that, I agree. You know, you see how fast some of those cars are, and it's like, hmm, a car can go that fast, doesn't need wheel speed, doesn't need a wheelie bar to create wheel speed, has to dead hook the tire, and it, and it weighs 3,000 pounds, and it can go that fast down low. It's like, okay, if they can do that, how do you make a big tire car do that? And so I think some of that technology crosses back and forth, and to see some guys that that aren't tied into a stigma of this is how you need to run a race car, and you make the car do what you think it needs to do, and some of these guys haven't been involved in that environment, so they're just trying to figure out how to make their car work. So so they're not held to a certain um, way to, to tune the car. I think it's interesting because it's opening up, you know, they're outside-the-box thinkers, and it's opening up opportunities to help big tire cars and vice versa and chassis setups and so on and so forth. So working with Justin Elks is interesting because he sees all those different types of cars. And we talk about that. And he talks about what the, the difference in what the shocks do and, 
in you know how the car it separates the rear end instead of squats with a radial car versus right. a drag car. And then we were even testing. We had a run where we screwed up and the rear end separated, and the car went fast and it stuck. You know, and it didn't lose the tire. It's like, hmm, what did we just learn there? So it's 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 really interesting. But I think all the forms of drag racing right now um, are really on a high. Uh, I just I wish that there were IHRA was a little healthier. Um, the fact that NMRA and NMCA is is healthy. Those are great great uh, series that that bring out a lot of cars. And what's neat about that is you don't have the touring pros. You know, you right. do have in some of the heads-up classes, but you got a lot of regional support with the brackets and some of the lower-tier classes. Um, you have a lot of guys that are competing in those environments that are also um, mechanics, shop owners. Yep. Um, so so it's not just racers. There's there's a business aspect to it. So, so I'm seeing a lot of activity in, in just about every form of drag racing right now. And uh, and it's great to see. Do you think what are, what's your take on the street strip high performance market right now? It seems like I mean you talked about the import stuff, but you know like these Coyote engines, the the LS c- continuing the new LT engines, all this. I mean even the factory stock cars kind of separate, but it's just crazy the kind of performance that is almost expected by like a fast street car. I mean, there was a time not that terribly long ago when like a 600, 700 horsepower car was a pretty big deal. Thousand horsepower was unheard of where it seems like now, I mean, you're like a few bolt on performance parts away or a turbo kit away from a thousand horsepower street car everywhere you turn on pump gas or E85. How has that movement impacted you and Aeromotive? It's it's been huge. I mean, when when we founded the company, or when I founded the company, it's going to be 25 years ago. We created what we call the A1000 pump, and that was the pinnacle of we could support a thousand horsepower. It could be driven on the street. It has durability and reliability. And right now, that pump barely gets you in the ball game. I mean, what you can do with vehicles, the amount of power you can make, you can take you know an LS engine, like you said, slight modifications or a bolt-on um, supercharger. Um, or do things with turbos, and they're reliable, and they're fast. And to make 1,400, 1,500 horsepower, um, and, and even more on street vehicles reliably, is is common. And, and it's been a challenge for us because it's all about fuel, air, and spark. And those are the three components of power. And, and fuel doesn't create power as a standalone. It has to have the other components in order to do that. So, so in order to produce something that can put out the amount of volume you need to support that hot horsepower and the physics of if it's with an electric motor and the amount of power you have to generate with an electric motor and the amount of heat that you have to generate that you have to figure out how to manage that to make it survive on the street and and at the same time you got to consider the fuel you're running and you you can't boil the fuel because fuel has certain characteristics that you have to concern yourself with it's and then every year the fuel changes you know so the elastomers that you use in the regulators and, and the, the materials you use in the filters may not be compatible with winter gas versus summer gas. It's a moving target, but but that's what makes us who we are. That's why we're as good as we are, because we're intimately involved with that, and we're able to make changes and advances because we understand the environment we live in. Um, but, yeah, to, to have a 1,000-horsepower streetcar right now, uh, today, that's almost like sh- off the showroom. Right, I mean, you can literally, man, start. It's, it's crazy. Nine, what nine hundred horsepower? Yeah. Um, so, and to drive something like that on the street is just crazy. I mean, nine hundred horsepower on a drag strip is fast, let alone on the street. So, so it's been challenging. It's been rewarding, and uh, 
you know, it's definitely changed the complexion of our business, and it makes us, uh, you know, we have to keep up on our toes. I'll tell you, the last time I sat in this conference room, I came here. It's been several years ago now, but I'll never forget this. And I got to tell this story because I know that you you have you've experienced similar things. I came down here to meet uh, you and uh, talk and see the place or whatever. I parked about a mile and a half down the street because I drove my like '94 Honda Civic here, uh, and I didn't want you guys to see me in it. I'm like, God, I hope nobody's outside like getting something out of their car and wonders why the hell Wes is walking down the street sweating, you know, because it was hot. And But I didn't want anybody to see my beater car. And I just think about, you know, being here with you now, several years later. Um, I wish I would have known that. Oh, I know you never would have let me live it down. I know that much. Um, and I was so worried that somebody would, like, ask me for a ride. Like, somebody, Steve's going to be like, Wes, run me down the street to Jimmy John's or whatever. I'd be like... Let's walk. It's a beautiful day. Let's just walk, you know. But I'm to think about 25 years of yourself being in business um, and the the uphill battle that this has been in time at times. And you know, we can't hardly have a conversation without you without talking about your father, you know, and just like the the challenge that he had coming to our country. But to think about you being here now with this massive business and a, a brand that's known around the world, hell, you have people ripping you off in China. I think that's like a badge of honor. You know, that wasn't part of the script, by the way. You're not supposed to bring on my family. Um, yeah, I, I think it's been well documented that, that and, I, and I, say, I say it all the time, everybody has a story. Everybody has a past that, that you know, is, is made them who they are in the present. And 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 I've had a unique story, and, and my father was a driving force, and, you know, five, six Hungarian that was like a little tyrant. Um <laughs> If there was a mountain to climb, he would climb it. He built his own stuff, raced his own stuff. You know, if he was he was ready to fight as much as Ratia, you know, and, and he lived hard and and uh, he just uh, taught me a lot of life's lessons. And and then when you when you see that and you see how hard you work and and you you know the blood, sweat, and tears and the risk and and you know taking your family and maybe putting your family in a situation where you're not always there for them and. And you're always trying to, to, to better yourself. And then to have, you know, counterfeit product come over from China. And to um, have some of the things that you worked so hard on to not just create a company but put food on the table. And you see, and I, and I said this, and anybody that, that, anybody that was at SEMA, we won the Manufacturer of the Year Award this year um, for SEMA, which was very rewarding. Can't believe we won it, but um, it, was, it was quite an honor. And I, and I stood on stage, and I wasn't prepared, and, and I'm a little more prepared now. And I used the terminology, those Chinese bastards, and I meant it because, you know, not as a people but as a culture, um, to allow them to, to steal our intellectual properties. And, and, and I'm not – I don't want to get political here, but please support what, what our politicians are doing and trying for um, – to, to – do whatever we have to do to keep them from cheating because that's what they're doing is they're stealing our technology. We get product that comes in that failed in the field. And if you if you can imagine a fuel pressure regulator for high pressure in a car that you spent years building and all of a sudden you have a ruptured diaphragm because it wasn't a diaphragm that has gone through the painstaking process that some of ours has. and 3,200 hours on a flow bench. And, and all of a sudden someone's car burns down. And it can even hurt them. It can it can kill it can kill you. You're in a car fire. It can kill you. And to get that product back with our logo on it, 
It's not even, you know, a knockoff. It's a true counterfeit. And for, for our government to do very little and for the Chinese government to not even care, talk about something that's, that's a travesty. Um, so, so I think what's happening in the world today with we're trying to hold China accountable and we're trying to make them play fairly and, and we're trying to do things for the long haul, not just for today, not just because we want you know, to buy things. Let's face it, whatever they make is non-essential. I mean, they're not bringing food. They're not bringing pharmaceuticals. They're not, you know, so whatever we get from there, whatever plastic cheap gizmo that you buy from over there, okay, pay a little bit more now so that in the future um, things will be better for us and our children. I think that's the important part. So, so yeah, it stems back from the way I was brought up to seeing how hard it was, to seeing how hard we worked, to looking at all the sacrifices you make, to get to the point where you finally um, start to establish yourself and have, you know, some type of ROI and all that sweat equity and investment that you've had for 25 years, and all of a sudden see product come over the ocean that has your name on it, that that is, and people buy it because it's cheaper. They think it's your product. <coughs> it's just hard to swallow. So, so that's that's been the tough thing about about business. That was that was awesome. We need to yeah, we, we need to like keep that as a public service, yeah. you know. Announce, but it's true, and I think sometimes you're not going to see me wearing a MAGA hat. But that aspect of what <laughs> what they're doing is, I, I you know, I have to agree. That's what about a make drag racing great again? Hat? <coughs> I can do that. One of those. We rock. One Absolutely. Of those? We're actually developing a new. We're trying to develop a new slogan. Right, we're and and Murder Tundra immediately shot down. I said, "Let's do make drag racing fun again," and he goes, "No," and I said, "But." I, but I do think that there's some truth to that, and this is a dem- dramatic departure, though, and I, I'm curious, and I've noticed this with, with you this year. Um, that's one of the things that you hit the nail on the head, whether this, the NMCA or the NMRA, the PDRA, most people go drag racing for fun. This is supposed to be a hobby. Now, many of us do this at a professional level, or there are some, like with yourself, it serves as a test vehicle. It serves as an R&D platform. But by and large, most people are out here having a good time, and that is one of the things that I think that I've hated to see, and that's something that you're exactly right. The camaraderie that exists in the ProMod pits, that's an important component to all this because we got to make sure that the people that are spending their hard-earned money, risking their lives or whatever it else may be, hopefully are having fun in the process. JT doesn't like the... The, the tagline, but there is some truth to that, that we got to be having fun doing this. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. it, you know, and, and I'll tell you a little story. Um, we, were, we were going into the semis, and I was against Stevie, and in Atlanta, you know, this team that, that I'm on now, it was a mad scramble to get this car done and ready, and, and come to find out, you know, we have bigger hubs um, for our floaters than, than the other two cars, so our wheels have different centers. Oh, okay. And uh, so... And if you know anything about ProMod cars, is you or, or any car at that level, you only run the tires so many runs, and then you got to swap tires. Well, we were having to get to the point where we had different tires on different wheels, and we'd swap centers because our centers were five and a half by five right. by five instead of five by five by five, and and uh, we got to the point where one of the sets of wheels we had went out of service, so we had to get a new set of wheels that had the wrong center in it. Come to find out, Stevie Fast in Atlanta, we were talking. Um, I think it was Thursday night at a, an establishment in Atlanta, and he's like, I got those centers in my shop. I'm going to have them Ubered over, and you'll have them in the morning. And sure enough, he paid like 300 bucks or whatever it was to Uber them over. So we put those centers in the wheels, and we used those this weekend. Um, 
Well, we go up in the semis, and Stevie comes walking up to me, and he goes, I need those centers back. <laughs> <laughs> that is so, an awesome story. So, so you, you look at the, the level of competition, the, the how important it is. And, and I hate to say this, for him probably even more so than me, because this is how he makes a living. You know, I don't make a living like this, but but I think I'm every bit as competitive. But, you know, there, you got those funny little stories that, you know, he comes over in big smile, and this and that, we're ready to race. And, and you know, he's, a, he's, you know, congratulating me and happy that we're – finally performing the way that we should. And he's like, oh, by the way, I need your centers back. You know, it's just, <clears throat> that's an awesome story, yeah, man. So, and that's what you see. I mean, and, and you see some of the other pro categories. <clears throat> when they're in the pits, guys aren't type, talking and smiling, right? Yeah. Um, there's, there's a certain am- amount of um, anxiety and pressure that, yes, we have pressure, but, you know, like I said, there's a certain camaraderie in our group that you don't see in other classes. I mean, and this is, and I'm not going to keep eating <coughs> on this, but I just think that it's a perfect segue is that, and you have reminded me of this, and I appreciate it very much at different parts of my life. I mean, your father coming to this country and not knowing the language, mm-hmm. that is pressure. That's a big problem to solve. But, like, we've got to run the number one qualifier. That's not a big problem. No, I, I you know, and you're right. I mean, my dad came over in 56. He escaped the communist uh, regime. The Russians were coming in, and he had to leave um, because he did some things over there that were questionable fighting the communists. And he came over here, couldn't read or write, he couldn't speak the language, um, had to teach himself how to read and write, built a business, built a car. And, you know, when you're young, you don't respect that or appreciate it. But when you get older, you start to look back and say, okay, you know, building a business, um, raising a family, going to the racetrack, qualifying, it's pale in comparison to survival. And, uh, but... I, I like to think that the, that DNA is just part of you, you know. And, and Agreed. When I, when I feel like I'm challenged, I always look back to that and say my challenges are nothing compared to what he had to and my mother had to do uh, in their upbringing and in their life. There's no doubt about it, man. And I appreciate, like, you have you're, – you're quick to, to bring things into perspective for me, and it's been an honor to have you as a mentor and a good friend. And I appreciate you taking the time, no, man. We burn up almost your whole afternoon. Yeah, I'm gonna have to stay here late tonight. Yeah, I gotta go pick up my uh, melted motorhome in the morning. So, oh my goodness! So go. And you know, okay, I'm not. He brought it up, so we can't not talk about it. But the one of the things that I said, and we'll, this is a great way to book in this conversation, is that whenever, uh, and huge shout out to Joe Costello and the guys at the NHRA for letting me come up there and blabber on the PA with them. Um, I appreciate them welcoming me in, like they have. But one of the things that I was saying to Joe Costello right as you were rolling through the water box, not quite yet broadside, but fixing to be broadside, was that how important it is to get a little bit of momentum and to have a little bit of good juju on your side in drag racing because this deal will beat you down in a hurry. And it was just a few weeks ago that you know you had the four-link brackets rip out of the chassis of the car and wheelie bars broken and this is tore up and then you're driving your motor home back to the to back to your house and it bursts into flames virtually spontaneously combusts and this this is a sport that will humble you in a hurry yeah you you get to the point where you know you have signs but you don't know what the signs are telling you you know i said <laughs> that weekend and it was tax day we were testing in houston and and it rattled the tires, and all of a sudden I can hear the wheelie bars dragging. And, I mean, it literally ripped the bolts out of the top bar of the four-link uh, on the passenger side, which everybody that saw that image of it said, I've never seen that happen before. So it's like, okay, we're done testing. Hop in the motorhome, drive home just north of Houston, smell something, look, inverter fire in the motorhome. 
and it was on fire. And, and I almost couldn't put it out, put it out. Ended up driving to Oklahoma to Richard's place because he knew a guy that could get it taken care of. Felt like I smoked 35 packs of cigarettes on the way because right. we were still smoking the cabin. And JT was bummed yeah, that he wasn't on that trip. Yeah, he would have loved that. <laughs> <laughs> Just inhaling away. <laughs> but for me, it wasn't good. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and you start to look back and say, do I have a guardian angel that's been watching over? Because, you know, pulling a four-link bar out of a car I've like that. I've never seen anything like that. And at speed, think bad things can happen in a hurry. And uh, being in a fire of a, you know, it just, it all happened on one day. So, so you start to really, you know, look back and reflect and say, you know, did I really piss somebody off or, <laughs> what have or I done? do I have a guardian angel? And I'm not sure which one. And then it really, you know, it really tests you. How bad do you want to do this? I don't have to do this. I don't, you know, there's nothing, you get to a point where there's nothing more to prove, but we're doing it for the sheer level of competing and racing and if you want to be the best you got to beat the best um so so there's a drive there's a passion about it i don't know why you know but but it there just is but but things like that make you sit back and say you know is this the right thing is it time to hang it up is it you know am am i biting off more than i can chew and um, you make the decision to put your head down and, and keep plugging, and then you have a weekend like we had this last weekend where things are just turning around, and I'm picking my motor home up tomorrow. <laughs> so Right. Well, so it's a rebirth. Well, it's and I rebirth. tell people all the time, and especially if you work, like it's hard to understand the psyche of the racing community, like collectively, like how we're all unfortunately on some level the, those of us that are able to maintain an even keel i asked alan johnson top fuel alan johnson one time i used to like unabashedly ask people for life advice i mean i literally would anybody that i bumped into i'd be like hey you got any advice <laughs> like and he told me that maintaining an even keel was like his superpower that he was able to kind of resist the urge to be too high or too low. And I thought, oh, shit, I'm out on that. So, no, <laughs> but I guess I'm screwed. But it's funny because our whole sport, I think, to some degree, fights that same battle because you're so right. It was a few weeks ago, and it's like, shit, man, maybe I should just throw in the towel and hang it up. And here we are today, and you're on the phone, like, making sure that we're doing preventative maintenance. Let's buy this. Let's do this. Let's do whatever because we got things. We got some momentum. We're heading in the right direction, and that's how quick it turns. Yeah, and it, it just you, you got to be prepared. I mean, you got to be because re- you're going to get knocked down, and and it, it's the part it, when you're doing well, it's easy, right? Anybody could jump on board. It's easy. It's great, but it's when times are tough. When you get knocked down. When we had a year like last year where we qualified once, um, you know, it's just and you come into this year with high expectations and you test limited and you go to the first race and you do well and you're you're you know your expectations are up there and then you get beat down and beat down and beat down, you know, but, but you relate it to life. I mean, that's just the way it is, is that, you know, you, you gotta be able to cope. You gotta be able to deal with it. I think what Alan said, um, is, is accurate. I mean, I'm not that personality either. You know, when I get happy, I smile when I'm right. you know upset, I pout. Right. <laughs> so, but, but I, I think you got to figure yourself out and you got to figure out when it's, the lowest of the low and, and you're on the grind, you got to just pick yourself up and, you know, dust yourself off and, and just go on and make sure what's important to you is important and you keep that in focus. I agree. And that's a great way to close. So, cause it's, uh, it's like, uh, 
the juice is worth the squeeze. I try to tell people like I've, you know, whether you're struggling in your business or you're one of these young guys trying to get a race program put together, or you're out there beating the brush for product sponsors, someone to sponsor your transmission fluid or whatever, the, the juice is worth the squeeze. You get that first box of product from your buddy, Tom at Lucas oil, and he hooked you up. It, there's nothing as rewarding as that someone feeling that sense of someone believing in you or someone spending a dollar with you. And that, that first dollar you get, or that first check you cash, I mean, it's a very rewarding thing, and the the ultimate one in our sport of drag racing, and this is something that you talked about a moment ago, but that golf cart ride down to the return road, mm-hmm. that that feeling of being on the golf cart, knowing we did it. We're, we're going right. to the yeah. next round. There's no feeling quite like that. So the juice is worth the squeeze. Thanks for the time, man. Thank you, Wes. Appreciate, appreciate it, buddy. No problem. Thanks for coming by. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Now we got to do real work. You better go burn one. And get ready to rock. You, I've seen you disappear like three times during the hour and ten minutes. You didn't smoke. I didn't. Swear to God. Swear. Okay, fair enough. He swore right here on the internet. You can go start a car in the background if you want. That's yeah, go fire one up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody.